Welcome to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. You're listening to episode two in a three-part series that explores the theology of Jordan Peterson. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoy. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody where the two of you perhaps are talking about the same thing, but you're using different words? You know, I'm actually, a, I'm a big NBA fan. I, I love basketball. I grew up playing basketball. So let's say you and I were talking about three-time NBA champion from the Golden State Warriors, Steph Curry. And we're talking about his performance in the last game of the NBA Finals. And you say something along the lines of, wow, man, in that last game, Steph was wet which in basketball terms simply means he was hitting from everywhere, can't miss, he was you know, one of the Splash Brothers, right? He was wet. And I go, yeah, man, he was. He was on fire. Now, I just said he was on fire, and you just said he was wet. Though both of those words would seem like antonyms, in this context, we're actually talking about the same phenomenon, the same occurrence, the same experience. We're talking about the same thing. And though we're using different words, we're in agreement. Have you also had a time where perhaps you have used the same word as someone else, but found that it has different meanings? Let's say again, you and I were talking, but instead of both of us talking about the NBA Finals, you were talking about Steph's performance in the last game of the NBA Finals, and I was talking about my recent trip to the lake. And you said something along the lines of, boy, Steph, he was wet. And I say, in talking about my story in which maybe my son fell into the lake, and I go, he was wet. We both used the same phrase, we both used the same term, but yet, though we were using the same phrases and the same words, We were actually referring to very different experiences, very different phenomenon, and very different ideas. Today's podcast of Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making, we're going to continue to explore the theology of Jordan Peterson. In the first episode, I highlighted some theological affirmations, some things I perceive to be as positive presented in the theology of Jordan Peterson. In today's message, we're going to explore whether or not when Jordan Peterson or a Christian talk about a certain phrase or word, whether or not we're actually meaning the same thing. So in today's episode, I'm going to offer some critiques or what I perceive as weaknesses in the theology of Jordan Peterson. Again, if you haven't listened to the first part uh, part of this podcast, I encourage you to go back, listen to episode one, so that you're not just listening to the critiques. Because as always, we hope to present in this podcast nuanced dialogue that I hope is presented in a fair and respectful way. So while today's episode is filled with a few more critiques than the first episode, I'd encourage you to go back and listen again so that you realize this isn't a hit piece on Jordan Peterson, nor is the first episode a wholehearted endorsement of the theology presented in Jordan Peterson. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Enjoy today's podcast.
All right, so let's talk about what I perceive to be uh, a theological weakness, uh, a point of contention I'd like to bring up in the, the theology presented by Jordan Peterson. And uh, the first one here is a, a huge one. This Honestly, this can't be, to me, overstated. And this is something that he actually intentionally tries to downplay but uh, I think it is a much bigger problem. And if, you know, and s- if by some uh, act of God, um, pun intended here, that this, uh, this YouTube channel and podcast uh, grew in popularity to the point where it garnered some attention from Dr. Peterson, I, I mean, I would love to have dialogue with him about this. So uh, I think one of the, 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 first, the first point I want to highlight in today's show is that um, it is a weakness of Dr. Peterson's entire message to consistently dodge the question of, do you believe in God? Now, you can probably see on YouTube, and if you've been to his lectures, this always seems to come up in Q&A time. Podcasters and interviewers are, are frequently asking him this question, and he frequently gives a, a very similar response. And at the lecture I was at, this would have been uh, last Sunday night. Gosh, what is the date here? Last Sunday night, uh, June 17th, here in Minneapolis, uh, this question came up again, and his answer was, quote, it's none of your damn business if I believe in God. And I get, on one hand, I get the reasons that he states for that, uh, for not wanting to share his uh, opinion, his belief on God. And one of those reasons that he frequently states is that he doesn't want to be put into one of like two binary categories. And boy, I totally understand that. I am sympathetic to that because in America in 2018, um, we are given to so much polemic language and, and we are very tribalistic and it seems like we have actually in many ways only grown. And one of the things Jordan Peterson's concerned about is uh, we've only grown in this sort of um, identify, identify, personal identification with the collective first, and then as an individual second. And so I think what Jordan Peterson tries to avoid is being put in a collective, a collective label placed on him that he is a, either an evangelical a theist, a Christian theist, or he is an atheist. And because when that happens, uh, people on the other side of the aisle will typically shut you out and not listen to what you have to say. If you're a Republican, then you wouldn't listen to a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, you don't listen to a Republican. If you're a Christian, you don't listen to Muslims. If you're a Muslim, you don't listen to, to, to Christians. And it, it's a total mess. So I understand in one regard why he does that. But I actually think, and though I actually, I do, I do get the impression that um, Dr. Peterson is um, rarely, if ever, being disingenuine about what he believes uh, when he says something. This is actually an area I I would challenge him on. And while I am sympathetic to his first point about not being boxed in to a particular category, I also think that he might be slightly disingenuous in his response to this question. 
Um, and the reason why I say that is because his answer, uh, what he, how he answers this question, um, is actually very much like uh, his uh, protege, uh, someone that uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson considers himself to be a disciple of, and that's Carl Jung. Uh, and, and, and Jung was very much a um, non-committal and, and liked to claim that he didn't even make metaphysical claims, which there is plenty of uh, scholarly literature that debates whether or not Jung made any metaphysical claims. And I, I would certainly make the case that he does, and all of us have metaphysical or what we might say are uh, beliefs about the ultimate questions in reality. And this is why this podcast is called Theology, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making, is because theology questions, metaphysical questions that we answer about the nature of God and the universe are embedded into our beliefs and into the rest of the way that we view the world. So Dr. Peterson, I don't think he's totally being... um, genuine in this answer. I think he's actually trying to be faithful to a sort of Jungian um, school of thought by not giving a clear uh, creedal answer. Um, So here's the problem. This is why this is a much bigger problem for me and why it should be a bigger problem for you. And it's not because if he said, I don't believe in God, that I would suddenly not listen to him. There are plenty of people I love to read who have not and, and listen to who, who do not express a, a, a belief in God. And I actually think there's much I can learn from. One of my favorite authors is Camus. And Camus certainly wasn't uh, a theist until, although some, uh, you know, there is some debate whether or not he made some sort of, um, you know, a, a leap of faith in a Kierkegaard sort of term uh, at the end of his life. But this isn't to put him in a box. Here's why I think it's a problem. Uh, if God is merely the abstraction of a human ideal, and that's using Peterson's terminology, that has evolved over millions of years, then the notion of God maybe advantageous in an evolutionary perspective and you know it may be foundational to western civilization and in that way it's it has tremendous pragmatic purpose which i know uh, jordan peterson has stated before that you know much of his uh, much of his ethical instruction is based in a sort of pragmatism if God is merely the abstraction of a human idea, ideal that has evolved over millions of years, um, and maybe it just has tremendous pragmatic purpose, but it doesn't represent something that is real, it's ultimately just a socially advantageous dream in our sort of matrix-like delusion of reality, and, and that's a problem. Uh, and again, this very well may be the case. This might actually be what uh, Jordan Peterson believes as he starts to talk about notions of God and in his lecture series that he did on, and maybe actually, he's, I think he confirmed he's going to pick back up at some point on, on, the, on the Bible. Uh, as a as a young disciple, Carl Jung, and and for those of you not familiar, if you've heard talks from him, you know Jung is spelled J U N G, and uh, he you know was one of the most important um, psychologists in the last 
um, you know, really in the last two centuries, uh, him and he and Freud. Jung rejected the sort of rationalism of modern philosophers, and uh, Jung simultaneously rejected materialism, naturalism. And again, we talked about what materialism and naturalism is in the fir- first podcast. Again, it's the, the belief that the, the universe and all of reality is simply comprised of matter and can be reduced only to matter. There's no spirit, there is no supernatural, etc., etc., so Jung liked to think of himself as positioned somewhere between that sort of rationalism of modern philosophers and the materialism and naturalism of his day. But Jung himself had a, did have a metaphysical belief system. And uh, we can deduce this from Jung's work. And I think in many ways, once one begins to understand Carl Jung, they they can possibly, and I would love to have further clarification from Jordan Peterson on this, but as I, as I read Jung and as I read uh, scholars on Jung, uh, this actually makes the most sense of Peterson's metaphysical beliefs. And I think one of the best ways that we could describe Jung's beliefs about the nature of reality is that Jung believed in vitalism. So what is vitalism? Uh, vitalism is neither materialism or truly theism, though in some sense there is m- more compatible with theism than materialism and vitalism. And so that's where I think, and this is one of the keys to why I think so many theists of all sorts of different stripes and colors actually find a degree of resonance in, uh, in Jordan Peterson's worldview. Vitalism, again, it's neither materialism or truly theism. It is the belief that there is a vital force that is unique to living things, which creates and animates living things. It gives them its form and function. And um, this this living vital force, uh, also centralist viewpoint, is the notion that this, this vital force isn't reducible to material or physical properties. So it can't be explained within the naturalist and materialist viewpoint as just being a material thing in and of itself. So it is a vital force. And in fact, you know, though I joked about Star Wars at the beginning of the podcast, in many ways, vitalism is is similar to Star Wars theology and philosophy, the idea of a vital force behind all living things. And, you know, also very st- similar to the, the Star Wars view. And don't worry, in future podcasts, I'm a major Star Wars nerd. I, I, I'm sure I'm going to take plenty of time to go through some of the, the theology presented in Star Wars. And uh, it, it'll, be, it'll be super fun for you Star Wars nerds out there. But this living force, which animates and gives form in star wars it's also not like personal right it's sort of an impersonal force and that's one of the ways that vitalism is distinct from traditional theism 
is that in traditional theism, and in particular Christian theism, God, the, the, the source of all reality, is not impersonal and can't be explained simply as unconscious vital force, but is actually immensely personal. And that's one. I go through many other distinctions, but I'm not going to take the time to do so right now. So this is where in vitalism, and you know, vitalism can actually be traced all the way back to you know, Aristotle and arguably before Aristotle and primitive religions and, and uh, re- religious viewpoints in, in, in you know, history before, um, you know, Judaism and Greek philosophy. Uh, but vitalism believes in, you could say it is the spirit that gives vital force or it is consciousness it is the soul etc it it, the vital force behind it all is in essence the ordering principle that governs the material process and though again like i I mentioned it, it is traceable all the way back to aristotle and you could say before that as well it re-emerged in popularity and in contrast to rene descartes in the 16th and 17th century when Descartes suggested that all living things, including animals and humans, were complex machines with just, you know, varying degrees of complexity. And, um, you know, Descartes is widely considered, especially at least in Western thought, to be the, the first modern philosopher. And so uh, Descartes, his, his worldview here... Uh, while it, it did place uh, a certain primacy on the individual as he did his thought experiment, those you're familiar with him, you know, his you know, most famous phrase that comes from Descartes is, I think, therefore I am. His, his method of epistemological doubt is pretty foundational to Western thought. People don't like the notion of being a, a cog in a giant machine. And so... Uh, you know, prior to Descartes, you know, vitalism in different shapes and forms was, you know, pretty popular. This notion that there was a vital force, a consciousness, a spirit, a, a soul, and for young a psyche that uh, animated all living things. It, it, it was the thing, the difference between living things and non-living things, and then. You know, in the Enlightenment era, era, and um, uh, in the era of Descartes and Newton, the the exploration of the material processes of the universe, and for Newton and Descartes, finding there to be a seemingly uh, a universe governed by laws and having um, the complexity, deep complexities like a machine, but running in an ordered state of cause and effect, which gave birth really to modern science as we know it. One of the, you know, one of the consequences of that notion is if that, if, if also then humans are just complex machines with varying degrees of complexity, um, people don't like the notion of being simply a machine where there are forces at work within us that are determining our outcomes.
So Jung thought that a pre-existent vital principle is necessary to explain the world of organic phenomena. And that's actually, you know, a, a quote from Jung that, again, a pre-existent vital principle is necessary to explain the world of organic phenomenon. Jung's initial publication, actually, of clinical work uh, was his dissertation, and this is maybe just a little bit of an interesting side note, where he studied his cousin, who wasn't revealed to be his cousin at the time. Uh, he studied her as she participated in seances. And when she was participating in these seances, uh, she manifested a bunch of different personalities. And, and Jung was quite fascinated by this and considered these to be states of what he called double consciousness. And his conclusion is an interesting one. He concluded that uh, his cousin, what she was, what was happening psychologically to her was attempts within herself to find uh, to have the future personalities the right future personalities uh, emerge and break through the false personalities and so what is it that is driving this struggle this personal struggle for this breakthrough it's the vital principle so uh, there's another important idea from Jung that I believe gives insights into Peterson's own metaphysics, and, and that is a, a term used by Jung and, and others um, uh, called the, the psychoid. Now, the psychoid, which actually Jung used mainly as an adjective and not as a noun, is the unobservable deepest layer of the collective unconsciousness or the collective unconscious and uh, for young this like this phenomenon of uh, the collective unconsciousness precedes all of us and actually all psychic reality and not psychic as in like professor x um you know uh, that sort of psychic but psychic as in uh, you know properties that relate to the mind and thought all psychic reality derives from or flows out of an original wellspring that we call the archetypical collective so this collective the 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 reality of the mind that derives and finds its origin uh, in this wellspring it's interesting language, and you can see, in many ways, you can see why Christians would have a, a degree of resonance with this notion that there is a, a source, right, a, a pre-existent source, that there is something immaterial, that there is a, uh, a source of being, you know, these are, these are Christian notions. And so you can see where Jung's ideas, and then subsequently what I do believe to be also carried out in Peterson's work, is, is appealing. And I, in fact, you know, Jung, um, though again, there was, I think, some claims, many Jungian scholars claim that he didn't make any archetypal, I'm sorry, not archetypal, he didn't make any metaphysical claims you know, that he wasn't doing philosophy, that he was 
just purely doing psychology. I, I think if you were to even go to Young's home, I think you would find that to not be the case. Before you would walk into Carl Jung's home, uh, you would see written over his door. Now, you know, it wasn't in English. It was actually in, in Latin. And I'm, I'm not going to try to butcher the Latin. I'm just going to say it in English. You would see this phrase, whether called upon or not, God will be present. And actually, that very phrase was also, uh, you know, carved on his tombstone. Whether called upon or not, God will be present. And I've actually seen interactions with uh, Dr. Peterson and others um, that are maybe, you know, having debates about the the the, rel- the value of God and, and whether or not God is a, a valuable idea for society or not. Um, there's a, a, a good dialogue on the, the Unbelievable podcast where... Um, Jordan Peterson has an interaction. You have to forgive me. I can't remember the woman's name who he interacts with, but he frequently challenges her that that she's living as though God is present and existing in his life. And this is, in her life, I should say. And this is, you know, this is a kind of an an existential argument, right? I've talked about this in the first podcast. One of the strengths is that, you know, for Peterson, in a certain sense, faith without works is dead. And one of the ways that he has responded in in the past to the question about, do you think God exists or not? And he goes, I live as if God exists. You know, this is, again, I think this is very similar to um, his, his, um, his primary influence, uh, Carl Jung, as Jung thought, whether called upon or not, God will be present. And I look at that, I would look at that sign, I would walk in to Young's house, and I would go, amen. But I don't know if I'm saying amen for the same reasons that Peterson's saying amen. And that's the question. I think like that's the question a, a, a lot of Christians are, are wrestling with and trying to figure out. And maybe some are going like, ultimately, it doesn't matter. And I, I do think it, I, I think it does matter. But I see that, and I would walk into Young's home and go, yes. Whether called upon or not, God will be present because I have a belief in God. And because I've come to this belief in God and that I believe God acts and has certain attributes, uh, has a certain disposition and character. There are things that I can say I believe are true about God that include his omnipresence. And in particular, from a uh, you know New Testament perspective, I believe that you know God has sent His Holy Spirit, and that we have access to His Holy Spirit. And so, you know, those that have put on Christ have entered into Christ in salvific union. The Spirit lives in them. So, yes, God is present with me, whether I call upon Him or not. But I don't know if that is actually, I, I actually feel that this is not, uh, Young and I are saying different things. And I, I do believe Peterson and I, if he were to agree with that statement, is also saying different things.
So this first critique or first weakness I observe in uh, Jordan Peterson's theology, uh, I'm going to take a bit of time on because it, I think it is so important, and I, I would actually love to, to see, and I'm very much fine with Dr. Peterson uh, admitting like he's in a, a state of, of seeking, and I, that's, that's, I think that's a healthy place to be at, that's a healthy place to be at even if you're a Christian, is to admit that you're open to a process of growth and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I would love to see him provide further clarification, though I don't suspect that's going to happen anytime soon because it never happened for Young. And if, you know, in lots of ways, the, the, the people that influence us, we often hear, and in many ways, maybe I'm, this is a bit of psychoanalysis myself, we often feel and, and hear their voices. I'm not saying in a literal sense. We hear their their voices in our heads as we share our own views uh, about the world. And we can feel a sense, and this maybe happens with parental figures or pastoral figures in our life or certain teachers or, or theologians or philosophers that we read. We go, well, if, if they did or didn't say things a certain way, I maybe feel bound an obligation to be a good disciple uh, of that that teacher and to say things in a similar way or to not go beyond the bounds of the way they say it. So I don't think Peterson is actually going to ever really enflesh out his, his, his theological views, his metaphysical views, any more than he has. Uh, but here's why another reason why it's a problem that he doesn't, and that's it, it's obvious that Peterson is confident of certain epistemological processes like the scientific method, reason. But why would be my question. You know, the, the scientific revolution was all founded upon uh, the work of Isaac Newton. And the way that Newton came to understand and see the universe as having a, um, an observable process of cause and effect, the reason why he believed that to be true is because he himself had an underlying presupposition that uh, a belief, a faith in a God who actually created an orderly universe because this God's very nature, in his very nature, he was desirous of discovery. And this God was good. And this God was good and wanted to be discovered. So he ordered it in a way that is not meaningless and not patternless. And it is actually not unreasonable, but it is reasonable. And so when he, you know, though we've come a long way from Newtonian physics, this, this is a, I mean, this was a monumental shift in the way, um, you know, Western civilization came uh, to understand the role of science. But again, that was because of an underlying belief, an underlying presupposition in a God who was a personal first cause of the cosmos and had ordered the cosmos according to rational laws. So if you do not have that same underlying presupposition, that doesn't mean that you can't participate in the same processes Newton did. The problem I have with it is I'd have to ask you, well, why? Why do you even believe it? And I think there's there could there's other ways that people could argue, well, this is why I believe that 
um, reason is trustworthy and I'm, I'm a rationalist because uh, here's my other presuppositions that, that uh, are foundational to my own trust in processes like the scientific method. But unless you tell me those, I don't get why you believe them. Is it just because they seem to work? And, uh, you know, maybe there's a pragmatic reason that just seems like it works. I, you know, I'd like to know a little bit more from Dr. Peterson about why he has such a high degree of certainty in the own epistemological processes that he employs in psychology, in his clinical work, in his classroom. And what is it that, that, that undergirds that? All right, so I know I've spent quite a bit of time going through this first point of contention that I have with the theology expressed by Jordan Peterson, but I just think it deserves continued explanation. It deserves this attention because when he dismisses the question about, do you believe that God exists? And again, I understand some of his reasons. I actually even understand why he says, well, if you ask me that question, when you say God, I might not, you know, we might not share the same view of God. And when we say believe, we might not share the same view of belief. I get that. And, you know, for as much as he critiques postmodernism, you know, what he's really giving is a, that's a, that's a very postmodern uh, answer. And, you know, I get it. There's some, even some validity in that. But I think what he's actually revealing there is that when people ask him the question about, does he believe? And when he says believe, and do you, uh, do you believe in God? What they mean by believe in God is actually different than what he means by God. And it's God in the archetypal sense, in the, in, in the Jungian sense, where um, God may simply be what we can name the uh, collective unconsciousness, the psychoid. So uh, if that is the case, here's, here's one of the final problems that, that comes if, if God is um, merely nothing more than the abstraction of a human ideal is that uh, we, we have problems with the ethical wisdom then that Dr. Peterson presents. If there is no transcendent source of ethical wisdom that reveals how humanity ought to act and live in the world, and, and not just any source, not just a vital force, though he might admit to maybe something like that in existence, but if we cannot discern what the particular transcendent source is like, the attributes, the qualities, etc., then obviously Peterson's admonitions to live honestly, to take responsibility for your actions are, are simply nothing more than pragmatic deductions of what appears to produce socially positive outcomes within our Western culture. And if that is the case, then whether he, he likes it or not, he, he and Sam Harris are actually not that far apart. Because Sam Harris's ethics, his ethics from below, uh, his obvious, because he's a materialist, his obvious rejection of transcendent source of ethical wisdom uh, is, uh, is pragmatic. He is simply trying to, to deduce 
what could be right and wrong ethically from, uh, you know, scientific observation from some sort of reproducible results. And in that way, you know, if, if Peterson is not able to name what the source is, what the source is like, what the attributes are like, what it's not like, then I almost rather go with Sam Harris and Sam Harris's ethical wisdom. Um, both to me are, are flawed um, I affirmed in the first podcast that it appears that Jordan Peterson presents there as being presents there being an ethical source of wisdom. But again, this is where I would need clarification. This is where I, I need to understand when you talk about God, what do you mean when you say that? And and there's plenty of other places that he expounds on what he means when he says something, but I don't think he's going to expound on it because in the you know if he's if he's following you know following his mentor if he's following um, his his predecessor in 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 Young, then I I don't believe we're we're going to have much clarification. All right, so my first critique of Jordan Peterson's theology was uh, maybe a little bit longer than these other two. Uh, I still want to address two more critiques in this episode. Uh, The next critique I have that I perceive to be a weakness in the theology of Jordan Peterson um, is that he actually does not appear to take postmodern critique seriously enough. And you might go, how is that a theological critique? Paul, um, it is a theological t- critique. You know, I, I do not think, and evangelicals have had a history of being very, very suspicious of postmodernism. Now, I want to distinguish between postmodernism and some of the possible contributions of postmodern thought. Postmodernism as like a ideology that is like it, it, it's. <laughs> paradoxical actually you know it's an oxymoron for it to be a a school of thought because it's the it's the meta-narrative that we should be suspicious of all meta-narratives i want to distinguish that between some of the contributions of a postmodern thought and one of those contributions is that postmodern thought there is there's some things we can pull out of postmodern thought that are theologically true and one of those is that Many postmodern theologians and philosophers actually take very seriously the potentiality of sin to damage our ability to see the world rightly. And in fact, we could say that one of the possible contributions of of some postmodern thinkers is to help us actually see an area of sin's harmful destruction. And sin, I don't mean just on an individualistic sense. I mean sin on the macro sense. Uh, Sin's destructive potential in damaging our own epistemological processes and ability to see the world rightly. Part of the postmodern critique is that 
especially as we are in positions of power, we are unable to see how our positions of power blind us to the plight of other people's problems. And they blind us to the way that uh, other narratives and other narratives might actually reveal something something possibly possibly true. I don't know if Dr. Peterson takes seriously enough sin's potential or the the possibility of malevolence in himself enough. You know, one of the things that actually like gosh, almost it, it made me go like this a little bit. I can't see the, that face just on the audio podcast was he was talking in his lecture last Sunday night about how, you know, um, you know, dominance hierarchies are a naturally occurring thing. And, you know, he, he talked a little bit about how when you want to, you're going to go out and find a plumber that you're going to find the best plumber that does the most honest work, et cetera, et cetera. And so in that way, a hierarchy emerges among plumbers and you want to choose the ones that are at the top. And so the better ones rise to the top. And he's like, I don't see why it's not like that in everything else. And, you know, he's hinted at that he doesn't actually see there being systemic sin and that there aren't um, injustices perpetuated that keep certain people from who have similar ability from actually climbing to the top of certain ladders in corporate world or even for those that are Christians in the church, etc., etc. He doesn't see that. In fact, he it seems like he only sees the potentiality for systemic sin, so for the conglomeration of sinful individuals to act together in a way that, that creates this systemic sort of problem. It seems like he only, and what I've heard from him, seems to only see that happening with the state which I agree, you know, the state can be historically, especially in the, you know, the last, we saw this in the last 100 years, the state can do an awful, awful lot of malevolence and terrible things in the world. But to deny that the possibility that a person who, let's take our particular culture and society that has has been largely since Columbus got here and, you know, ravaged the the native peoples that lived here and the subsequent generations of European settlers that did that around North America. I mean, when was the last time you heard Jordan Peterson talk about that? Has Jordan Peterson ever talked about how uh, the, the problems in Western civilization that actually don't consistently apply the the one of the foundational premises and that's the supreme worth of the individual and i don't think i've ever heard him talk about how yes there's very much a reality that in 2018 though i individually i can't think of a single instance in my life where i have individually acted in any sort of racist way towards a towards a, a native american and here in, in Minnesota, there, there, there are quite a few. Um, though I haven't, I, d- I don't understand how you cannot confess to you being a beneficiary of a long system that has 
derived, has, has, has taken, has dominated, and has, um, through force, aggression, and malevolence, not just through like creative ingenuity, has actually gone out and subjugated, forcibly kept people at the bottom of dominance hierarchies. And it's happened in America, not just with Native Americans, but it has happened with with uh, African Americans as well. Now, as soon as I start to say that, if we were having a dialogue, I would be concerned that he would start to, you know, say, you know, pull out a yellow card and say, you know, this is identity politics, but it's not identity politics. I, I'm not, I don't think this is identity politics. I think this is naming what has actually happened historically. And what one of the things postmodern thought has done is critiqued the narratives that the people on the top of the pyramid of the of the uh, the top of the the dominance hierarchies the narratives that they have told and you know the narrative that i heard growing up as an evangelical you know during thanksgiving is you know the the, the happy wonderful relations between you know early christian pilgrims and the native americans and they worked together in harmony and i didn't know anything about hashtag honor the treaties right and you just do some research you know i i didn't i knew very little about the trail of tears i knew very little um, uh, about the massacres that that happened um these are tragedies and so you know for me to not listen to narratives that come outside of my own and outside of um you know, my culture is to not take seriously the potential of sin to damage my own abilities to see the world as it is, because I would rather given, um, given the state of the sinful world, the temptation is always to pride the temptation is always to lust. The temptation is always towards dominance instead of Christ-like service and acting in the world that way. And so I should be, if I'm serious about sin, I should also be serious about my own ability to feed myself with narratives that just feed my own confirmation bias and they just create this constant loop. And I think one of the things Dr. Peterson should be wary of is that his listeners can take on this sort of persona that sometimes he himself gives off. And it is uh, this notion that I, I don't have anything to learn and to understand outside of my own current worldview. And I do think that doesn't take seriously enough the, the damaging effects of sin on the world and it also doesn't take seriously enough some of the critiques of postmodernism. My final for this episode at least my my final critique or what I perceive to be a weakness in the theology of Jordan Peterson is that his theology of the Logos comes up short. And hence, because his theology of the Logos comes up short, his Christology comes up short. And guys, this isn't, uh, the purpose of this podcast isn't just about like, well, here's, you know, Orthodox Christian doctrine. And it's, it's not, this is not intended to be like an apologetics sort of podcast 
or program, which is just like, how do I defend my ideology? Well, what I'm trying to do is to have dialogue, theological dialogue about these issues. And so when someone starts using theological terminology, but uses it in a way, uh, uses the names that we would use in Christian theology, but maybe gives um, a different meaning to those names. I think it's important for people to just like clarify, well, this logos that Jordan Peterson talks about has some similarities to the Christian theology of the logos, and it also has some differences. So I'm just trying to highlight here some of the differences between Jordan Peterson's theology of the Logos, which I don't think he's really trying to present as a theology, but it inherently has a theological attachment to it. And, um, you know, we might say is like the Christian Logos, the Christian tradition of the Logos. So for Peterson, you know, Christ's association with the Logos, and there's several talks you can hear him, you know, you can find on YouTube where he, he goes into more of, you know, his psychoanalysis of the Logos, which is philosophical. It is theological. It's not purely just psychological. Again, pause for a moment, the talk. This is what this entire podcast is about. It's about the inherent integral nature of all of our meaning-making endeavors, psychology, all the sciences, um, arts, all of this stuff is part of an interconnected web that includes and is central to this whole process is theology. So uh, pause that quick promo plug for what this is all about. Let me go back and say this again. For Peterson, Christ's association with the Logos is because the result of Christ Jesus, his individualistic moral effort as a human to live in harmony with the word. Christ's association with the Logos is because of the result of his individualistic moral effort as a human to live in harmony with the word, with the Logos. This is very, very different than Christian notions of who Christ is. In this way, Peterson's calling to people to live as Christ in the world and to live in harmony with the Logos actually is simply just a call for continued self-authoring. In fact, Christ can just act, and this is probably Peterson's, why Peterson has immense a fascination and appreciation for Christ, and, you know, he he's, speaks very highly of the Buddha as well, is that Christ was like the ultimate self-authorer, and that he acted in perhaps the full potential of what a human being could do to act in accordance with the Logos. And the Logos is this, um, is the word, it's the thing that emanates, right? This is, again, from Jordan Peterson's perspective, it emanates from, if I'm going to use the the Jungian terms, from the the collective unconsciousness, from the vital force. It's, you know, and this is all messy. It's not clearly defined. So I'm doing the best that I can based on Jung and what I, I can derive from Peterson's talks, but this this logos, Christ lives in harmony with it, right? So this is about self-authoring. 
and it, it doesn't take long to realize that, you know, as soon as I start talking about Christ self-authoring to live simply in like moral accordance with a sort of standard that pre-existed him, we are now delving into, um, you know, areas outside of historic Christian uh, perspective and historic Christology. And in that way, you know, like you might say that this sort of logos theology has maybe more in common with the Gnostics or maybe more in common with uh, Arius because Christ is a human who's lived up to his full potential. And, you know, in a lot of ways, like in the 19th century liberal Protestant tradition, that's kind of what, what Christ was, was he lived up to his full potential. Um, and so this isn't, this isn't the, this isn't the Christian Christ. So we're now, I think, I'm bringing this up to say, now I don't know if we're actually, we're using the same words. We're not talking about the same ontological thing, right? We're, you use Christ uh, and Jordan Peterson uses Christ. And this is why he is probably being honest when, when he says, when people ask me, do I believe in God or do I, you know, do I think Jesus was divine? You know, he can say certain answers that mean certain things to him, knowing that they don't mean the same thing to you. So this is, this is a, a, a obviously like a big theological problem, right? In this way, the salvation of the individual and the world comes via the ascent of humanity instead of the descent of God. And that's a huge, huge difference. Huge difference. The Christian logos. Obviously, this comes from John 1. And John isn't like making up this term. Uh, he's actually... He's actually borrowing a Greek word from, uh, you know, actually Greek philosophers. Um, you know, there's some debate as to whether he's actually using it in ways similar to, you know, the, the Jewish philosopher, Hellenistic Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria used it. Um, again, that's that's a debate. It, it, it's it's possible, you know, it's possibly unlikely he didn't even know who Philo was, but regardless, this is a term that had, was already in existence and it was used, uh, in Greek philosophy to describe as the Greeks wrestled with, um, you know, the, the notion of, of, of God as perfect being, if this perfect being was ever to be perceivable to somehow perceive this God, to look upon the perfect, you couldn't do it. So what you needed was, um, to know the unknowable, in, in fact, you, you needed a, a mediating agent, right? And so the logos, the word is, is, you know, and this for his part, Peterson describes, I think, this part accurately. The logos and the word is, the word was the thing that, that emanates from, like, the unknowable, transcendent, and I will ju- I'll just say God, and makes him knowable. Now, when John uses that, and he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and then he goes on to describe how the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And now he's saying that word is Christ. He's not saying that Christ lived up to his full moral potential and lived in harmony with, um, with the revelation of God. No, no, no. He's saying that Christ, and this is obvious, you know, Christian Christology, Christ is God. He was the preexistent logos who became flesh. And like, this isn't just a point of doctrinal dispute without any sort of practical application. The way this has sort of like trickle down application into the lives of you and me is whether or not the salvation of the individual and the world, and I don't just mean like some sort of, you know, fire insurance. Again, I know I'm throwing out a lot of possible podcast topics for the future. We'll, we'll, I'll delve into, you know, different Christian notions on hell and final punishment for another time. But salvation, I don't purely mean in some sort of individualistic, I just am getting saved from, you know, the fires of hell or something. Salvation is much larger. But when I talk about the salvation of the individual and the salvation of the world, When not John the Beloved, but John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he goes, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jordan Peterson says, Look at the Logos, follow his moral example, fully embodied in Christ, who lived in accordance with the Logos, and you will be saved, is very different than to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The difference here again is that in Jordan Peterson's theology, the salvation of you and the entirety of the cosmos is dependent on your shoulders. It's on your individual responsibility. And you know what? I know a bunch of young males out there need a healthy dose of talk talks about individual responsibility and to own up to that responsibility and to live in the world in a way that contributes to the world and that's that's great stuff but the salvation of yourself to save you not only from some sort of eschatological demise, but to save you from your sins and the effect of your sins in the world, to save you from your malevolence, and to ultimately save the world isn't about the, the, the unassisted ascent of humanity towards the ideal, towards the collective unconsciousness. It is the descent of God into humanity, into flesh, right? It's the transcendent making itself fully eminent in Christ. And then through Christ's death and resurrection, the accessibility of now human individuals to become participants in the divine nature. So it's God's Descent, his entering into humanity, and his uplifting of humanity and ascent into him to be fully realized at the end of the age, to be fully realized in the resurrection and renewal of all things, in the resurrected bodies that we would become, uh, that we would that we would reach our full maturation in Christ, and this is, I think, a significant difference. 
and how Peterson's theology of the Logos and the Christian theology of the Logos would actually produce different, you know, existential results in our lives and in our understanding of the world. Well, after all that, you might be expecting a rousing altar call, and though my hair is looking exceptionally uh, mullety today, as if I were an early 90s youth pastor, I'm going to refrain from giving an altar call. But what I would invite you to is to be a continued participant in this dialogue we're having about theology and the intersection of theology to all of our other meaning-making endeavors uh, by subscribing to this video. And uh, I'd invite you to share it with people that you think are interested in the sort of topics we're, we're covering in this podcast. In what I believe is going to be the final episode, I don't want to totally promise, but I'm pretty close to promising the final episode. We're all now um, analyzing the th- theological strengths and weaknesses of of Jordan Peterson's presentations. Uh, I want to take time to devote particular attention to a weakness that I think deserves uh, particular attention. And to tease that final topic a little bit, uh, what I will say about it is this. You know, I mentioned in the first episode how uh, it, it seems that uh, Jordan Peterson has has done some some reading of Kierkegaard and has incorporated some of his ideas. In particular, the idea that what I really believe is uh, demonstrated in how I live my life. The challenge that I'm going to bring in the final episode is that I don't believe uh, Peterson goes Kierkegaardian enough. And what I'd like him to consider, if I were to have a dialogue with him, is to consider the substantial improvement Kierkegaard's challenge is to his own. And though his own challenge to accept responsibility for your life and to do what is true and what is right in the world, even when it's hard, is a noble message. It comes short of Kierkegaard's call to become a knight of faith. And so in the final episode, we'll explore that more. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Hope to talk to you online. Leave a comment. Send me a message. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation together.